it's not a blessing in itself, but it can be a blessing if we allow that time to do what pain does like nothing else. It shows us what's most important. It presses us against the wall. Welcome to Life, Love, and Family. Why God? Why this? Why now? Where are you? Don't you care? If you've ever asked God why, you're in the right place. What if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? Welcome into Life, Love, and Family. Hi, I'm Dr. Tim Clinton. How do you make sense when you've cried out to God? It seems like heaven is silent. If you're wrestling or someone you love is wrestling today, you have stopped by the right place as we invite into our program New York Times bestselling author, Phil Yancey. Philip Yancey serves as editor-at-large for Christianity Today magazine. He's written 13 gold medallion award-winning books. He's won two ECPA Book of the Year awards for What's So Amazing About Grace and his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. Four of his books have sold over a million copies. Phil, welcome into Life, Love, and Family. Thank you. Glad to be with you today, Tim. Philip, as we get started, we're going to talk about that big question, why? But let's start with the issue simply of pain. Physician Scott Peck, you know, he calls it the road less traveled. Lewis referred to pain as God's megaphone. You once wrote that it's the gift that nobody wants. Hey, we hate pain. It's like in the book of James, count it all joy when you fall into trials and tribulations. I hate that passage, Philip. But talk to us about pain. I guess it's just part of life. Yes. uh, You referred to Scott Peck's book, and of course the first sentence is, life is difficult. That's why you guys are in business, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Let me pick up on that image that Lewis used, the megaphone of God. What he said was something like this that God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts to us as if through a megaphone, through our pain. And far be it for me ever to take issue with C.S. Lewis, because he's one of the the giants, one of my mentors. But I wish he had phrased that a little bit differently, because when you say something like that, a lot of people think of, say, a football coach on the sidelines, who's shouting through a bullhorn to try to get the attention of his running back or something. And a lot of people think that's the way pain works, that God is up there and sitting in one of those bleacher deals, shouting through a bullhorn, I'll get that person, I'll get his attention. (laughs) And I don't believe that's the way it works. The image I prefer is that pain is the hearing aid that gives us the opportunity to tune into things that are most important. It's not a blessing in itself, but it can be a blessing if we allow that time to do what pain does like nothing else. It shows us what's most important. It presses us against the wall. And I think that's a little bit of what James was referring to in the passage and similar passages in Romans and in 1 Peter where it says, the good thing about pain is not that it hurts. That's the bad thing about pain. But the good thing about pain is that it can produce some things of value. Those passages usually go on to explain what those things are. Patience and and hope and spiritual maturity. I don't believe that God is out there sticking pins in people to teach them a lesson. 
On the other hand, because of the pains that I've been through and so many people I've interviewed over the years, I do believe that it is the graduate school of learning. It's the thing that teaches us most about what's most important in life. When people think of the question, why, your name comes up, and for good reason. Philip, you wrote the book, Where's God When It Hurts? You have a sequel to this brand new book out called The Question That Never Goes Away. Yes. Simply why. Philip, I'm going to ask you in just a moment about why people suffer, and we're going to talk through some things. But it started for you when you really think about growing up as a boy. Tell us about your dad. I was an infant. I was only one year old. So, of course, I don't have any conscious memories of this. But in those days, the disease that everyone feared was not malaria or AIDS. It was polio. And in the United States in those years, 50,000, 60,000 people a year would die from polio, and many more would be disabled by it. My father was only 24 years old. He was a young, vibrant Christian planning to be a missionary in Africa, already had his whole list of supporters and prayer warriors behind him, and then was struck with polio, a serious case, so that he went from totally healthy to being totally paralyzed within just a week or so. In fact, he couldn't even breathe on his own, so he was put inside an iron lung. Well, the people who had been praying for him uh, decided there's no way that a 24-year-old person who's going to be a missionary in Africa should die. So they became convinced that he would be healed. They were praying to that end, and against the doctor's advice, eventually had him removed from the iron lung. A few days later, he died. And in a sense, my whole life has been lived under the shadow of that, what I now see as an error in, in theology. They thought they knew God's will, and they didn't. I guess from the very beginning, I realized what we think about this issue, what we believe about this issue, matters. And if you get it wrong, the consequences are pretty severe. And ever since then, when I became a journalist, I started interviewing people who had been through hard times. Again and again, I would hear this phrase, the church made it worse. <laughs> and it, that just hurt me, because if anything, we, sh we should be bringing comfort and hope to those who are going through hard times. But I heard again and again that the church makes it worse. So that's why I am obsessed with this topic, I guess you could say, because we have not always done it the way we should have. We haven't always brought comfort and hope. And I wanted to find out the answers for myself. I wanted to study it and become sure about what I believed and what I could tell others. Well, we know the psalmist says, Philip, that the Lord loves righteousness. So we program into our way of thinking that if we do certain things, we reap certain benefits. While the Lord loves righteousness, this is a broken world filled with chaos and confusion, pain and brokenness, and thus the spin, right? Yes. I've sometimes wondered, okay, why didn't an author of the Bible, why didn't one of the writers of the Bible take this issue on in a very systematic way, the way, say, C.S. Lewis did, in uh, the problem of pain. Why didn't it? I mean, here we've got this book of Job, which certainly describes a suffering person, but it doesn't address the why questions. It, it kind of evades them. And again and again throughout the Bible, that same evasive response to the why question applies. I've concluded now that the biblical authors if you ask them, why didn't you do this, they would kind of look at you with a puzzled expression and say, well, obviously God's not happy with this world the way it is. This is a broken world. It's, it's an invaded world. And to me, it, it would be a bit like going to, uh, say, you, 
you wanted to go see the Mona Lisa. You've always heard about the Mona Lisa. And so you go to the Louvre Museum, and you line up, you buy your ticket, and you immediately look at the map. I want to go see the Mona Lisa. Well, what you don't know is that the night before, some vandals broke in and spray-painted graffiti all over the Mona Lisa. You go there, and you see this mess of a painting. And you say, what? This is one of the greatest paintings in history? Come on, this is a mess. Well, the Bible says, yeah, you're right. It's a mess. <laughs> it's, it's a spoiled planet. It's a stained planet. To try to judge what God had in mind by what's going on on this planet throughout history and right now is like looking at the Mona Lisa covered with red spray paint from a graffiti artist. That's why we Christians need to keep in mind. We don't have to defend the things that are going on in this world. And I, I tell people, if you are grieved, when I was in Newtown, Connecticut, if you are grieved by what has happened here, believe me, God is far more grieved. If you are upset by what happened here, believe me, God is far more upset. And God promises to do something about it someday. So we're not blasphemous, I guess, if we question, doubt, or even get angry with God as we try to work our way through and understand what it's all about. I tell people, if you feel anger, if you feel outrage, you're in good company because there's a lot of it in the Bible. About two-thirds of the psalms are psalms of lament, which is a fancy way of saying prayers that say, God, you're not doing a very good job of running this world. (laughs) Job is a whole book about that. Uh, Lamentations, Habakkuk, Ecclesiastes, it's all the way through there. In fact, when I'm on secular college campuses, I'll challenge the the kids. I'll say, I dare you to find a single complaint against God in in the atheists who are getting so much press these days that is not already included in the Bible. It's okay to complain. It's okay to get it out with God and say, I don't like the fact that my mother has just come down with Alzheimer's, that my little child has a, an illness that may cost his life. It's okay. God doesn't like it either. Get it out. Philip, when we begin to wrestle with the issue of why people suffer, we look for Bible verses for explanation, whether it's human evil, maybe mental illness, somebody's radical beliefs, ideology, whether someone's being negligent or just casting blame somewhere. But when you get to places where you just see acts of God, I guess we could call them, and the devastation that comes with it, it's like scrambled eggs in our brain. We can't make sense out of all of it. Take us on the journey that you went on, Philip, as you continue to just work your way through all this. Take us to Japan and all the way back to uh, Newtown, Connecticut, and more. Share with us some of the lessons that God began to reveal to you. The book we're talking about, The Question That Never Goes Away, came about when I reflected on my 2012. Some 35 years ago, I wrote the book you mentioned earlier, Where Is God When It Hurts? And because of that, I'm often asked to speak on that topic. In 2012, I spoke on it in three places of great suffering. One was Japan. We were there on the first anniversary of the tsunami. We spent most of a week in that devastated area. And then there was a a nationwide prayer meeting in memory of what had happened there. So that was in March. In October, I was invited to Sarajevo, this town that was besieged for four years. 10,000 people died Mm -hmm. there in war crimes, really. And then in December, I got one last call right at the end of the year. 
right at Christmas, in fact, and it was the call I did not want to get. It was from a pastor friend of mine right on the border of Newtown, Connecticut, who said, uh, could you possibly come to our town and speak on that topic, where is God when it hurts? So when I reflected on that year, I realized that I have learned a lot of things since I wrote my book 35 years ago, and I've learned it from people who've been through those hard times, just those three cases. One was what the insurance companies call acts of God. As you say, it was, it was the earthquake and tsunami. One was human brutality and war. And then the smallest, but in some ways the most horrible, was this terrible scene in Newtown with little six- and seven-year-old children gunned down in their school classrooms as their teachers are trying to protect them. I saw evil face-to-face as well as natural disasters. And as I reflect on that, that question, where is God when it hurts, I came up with several different answers. One answer, and we'll start here because I think it's the most important, is that God is on the side of the sufferer. It's easy when something bad happens to think God is against me. God is punishing me. Christians often don't help there. Here we had these floods in Colorado where I lived, and you heard pastors on the radio saying, well, it's because our legislature passed rules uh, legalizing marijuana or gay civil (laughs) unions or something, you know. And I I live right by a creek, and I'm trying to protect my property. And I I tell you what, it did not make me feel any better as I come in and listen (laughs) to those pronouncements. And often we are on the side of judgment. But if you want to know how God feels about people who are going through pain, just follow Jesus around in the Gospels. Look at how he responds to a widow who's just lost her only son, or even a Roman soldier, not a believer, not a Jew, (laughs) but a Roman soldier whose servant has fallen ill. Jesus never philosophizes, never gives that judgment, never even addresses the why question. He He doesn't say, by the way, that it was God's will for you, does he? No, he doesn't. (laughs) He takes the side of the sufferer. He will turn to the onlookers and say, something like this could happen to you. Is your life ready for something like this? But he never blames the one going through the hard times. He responds with comfort and hope. And, you know, you mentioned God's will, Tim. I read all these theologians, and I've stopped using that term, God's will. I talk about God's desire. I know God's desire because I follow Jesus around, and we're told he's the exact image of God. And, in fact, Jesus taught us to pray, a prayer that some people pray every day, the Lord's Prayer, The Father's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we should be striving for. So we know in heaven there is no suffering, there's no tears, there's no death. And what we, God's followers, should be about on earth is doing what we can to help those tears, to bring comfort and hope to the suffering, not to be someone who is just making it a little bit harder. The church made it worse, not to be on that side. So God is on the side of the sufferer. You know, I I would go a little further and say, um, wherever I've been, those three places that I went to in 2012 and many other places over the years, the church is there on the front lines. When there's an earthquake, when there's a natural disaster, the church is there. And you could almost rephrase that question, where is God when it hurts, to where is the church when it hurts? (laughs) Because if we are there, if we're representing God, bringing that kind of comfort, People aren't going to be scratching their heads wondering, does God hate me? They'll know God loves because God is in God's people, ministering and bringing practical help. That was true even in Japan. Here we are a year later, and there were teams from Samaritan's Purse and other Christian organizations 
who had quit their jobs, moved to Japan, living in, in very cramped housing, temporary housing, building houses for people who had lost their homes. And they weren't trying to proselytize, but at the end, they would say, before we give your keys to your new house, could we at least say a blessing on your house? Because here's why we do it and explain. They do it because they believe God loves them. And believe me, no one turned them down (laughs) when they asked to pray. The church is there on the front lines. Where is the church when it helps goes a long way toward answering where is God when it hurts. Philip, let's go to Newtown. Mm -hmm. Parents were waiting for the news about their son or daughter. A lot of parents got the horrible news, and yet there were survivors too. Sometimes when you have a picture like that, someone will say, my angel or God was there and took care of and protected me, while others were standing there saying, my son or daughter is gone now. How do you process through that? Do you think God weeps with us? Do you think God is broken in those moments with us, Philip? I strongly believe that, and the reason I believe that is that God gave us a face, the face of Jesus, and it's a face streaked with tears. We know from the Gospels at least three times when Jesus cried. One was when his friend Lazarus died. One was when he faced his own trial of suffering and death. And then another was when he looked out over Jerusalem and just saw the future that lay before them, this future of war and siege, and as much like Sarajevo where I went. In Newtown, you're right, we need to be so careful. So many times people who are well-intentioned, this happened to me just the other day. Somebody had lost a son, and a Christian came up and said, well, at least you've got another child. That doesn't offer comfort. Yeah. That's brutal. It's like sticking a knife. Yeah. uh, Because that hole will never go away. You can't just pretend to fill it, and you're not going to get over it. We're not here to help people get over things. We're here to help them cope with things. When I got that call to Newtown, it was a terrifying call. What can I say to these people? And I happened to be reading for another article a bunch of books by the new atheists, people like Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, people like that. And it occurred to me that there's one question that's harder than where is God when it hurts, and that is where is no God when it hurts. Because the New York Times that week, that sad week, was inviting pastors, priests, rabbis onto their op-ed pages. The new atheists were strangely silent. And I was projecting, after reading all these books about this is just a totally random universe, it's meaningless, we're all going to just be extinguished at death, it's a blind, pitiless universe, Dawkins said. If you stood in front of those parents who had just lost their little children, with that message, there's no comfort there at all. There's despair. I could stand in front of those parents and say, We have strong evidence of how God feels because God did give us a face. And just before he left, Jesus said, I am going away to prepare a place for you. And your little girl, your little boy, that grief will not go away. But trust me, they are in the loving arms of God right now. They're in a safe place. And you have the opportunity to see that child again. That is a word of comfort and hope. Now, not everybody's going to believe that. But Trust me, if you line that up with the message from the New Atheist that, oh well, bad things happen, there's no comfort, there's no hope there. We Christians do have a message of comfort and hope, and so what used to be a great challenge and stumbling block to my faith actually became kind of an anchor point, because as Paul said, 
if there's no resurrection, we're actually, of all people, to be most pitied. We're wasting our life here. We could be out partying in Las Vegas. No, we're not, because we believe there's more to life. We believe there's another life. You wrote in your new book, The Question That Never Goes Away, Why? It's actually a sequel to an earlier book uh, Philip Yancey wrote, Where Is God When It Hurts? He's our guest today. Philip, you wrote in the new book here, Grief is a Place Where Love and Pain Converge. It just stopped me for a moment. You know, I, I first thought of that insight when I was called to speak at Virginia Tech. I've seen very similar to what I encountered in Newtown. I had been in my own life-threatening accident. I had a broken neck and was wearing a neck brace and had to get special permission from the doctor just to fly out there. So I was standing in front of a couple thousand college students. Look out on their faces, and they're just contorted with grief. These young kids, they'd lost their teacher, they lost their roommates, their classmates. And I realized that the pain that I could see in their faces was actually a sign of their love. The shooter who had killed the people, he wasn't feeling any pain when he shot them because he felt no love. There was no connection there. And I remembered a statement from Dr. Paul Brand. I know you know that name. I sure do. Tim, and have heard him speak, and just a wonderful, wonderful person. He worked with leprosy patients, and he was the one, in fact, that discovered the disease leprosy killed pain cells. And then when the pain cells fell silent, that's when the people with leprosy started actually destroying themselves. They no longer felt that warning sign of pain. So they wouldn't, for example, they wouldn't blink their eyes because they didn't feel that little urge to blink every 10, 15 seconds and would go blind because their eyes would stay open all day and they would dry out. And Dr. Brand said to me one time, a healthy body is not a body that doesn't feel pain. That's actually an unhealthy body. That's what I deal with, with the disease leprosy. And I know, Tim, you work with so many counselors around the world, and it's the pain that drives people to seek help. It's the physical pain that makes us go to a doctor and discover what's wrong. He said a healthy body is not a body that feels no pain. A healthy body is a body that feels the pain of the weakest part. And that's my message to the church, not to pretend that there aren't bad things. Uh, We know there are but to be sensitive to them and to respond when there's someone in your church. We've been talking about some global problems here, but actually for many of us it occurs on a very local level. In my own church, a woman who lost her husband, and then she had a a brain injury, and she needs so much help of all kinds, and the church has rallied around her. That's a healthy body. An unhealthy body would say, you know, I don't have time. I'm too busy. I can't mess with her. It's... just too draining. A healthy body feels the pain of the weakest parts and responds. The best way we can respond is with compassion and with practical acts of mercy. It's our natural inclination to try to answer the question, why, with a reason. Philip, I'm going to go back to your earlier work, Where is God When It Hurts, and read this piece. Maybe God isn't trying to tell us anything specific each time we hurt. Pain and suffering are part and parcel of our planet. And Christians are a far cry from being immune to it. 
I'm thinking of Romans 8 when Paul begins the journey about the suffering that he experienced. He wrote, for I consider the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And we know that all things work together for good to them who uh, love God, who are called according to his purposes. What shall we say to these things he wrote later? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not freely give us all things? Therefore, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Philip, as we go, will you speak to the listener out there who is wrestling and screaming, God, why? Tim, I'm so glad you drove us through that Romans 8 passage because that is the pivot passage for me on this topic. Paul reviews his own life, and it's a life that included a lot of hardship, prison, torture, snakebite, shipwreck. And as he looks back over his life, he realizes that actually all of those things have worked together for good. And I like to use the phrase that God is a great recycler. The theologians would say God can redeem pain. I would say God recycles pain. He takes this bad stuff, this bad thing that happens, and can use it as an instrument for our own good. When I was struggling with this, I came up with my own definition of faith, and it goes like this, that faith only makes sense in reverse. You have to believe it in advance, but it only makes sense in reverse. And I remember reading a phrase on... Romans 8, from Dallas Willard, who died just uh, last Mm -hmm. year. For those who love God, nothing irredeemable can happen to you. I cannot, and God does not even seem to try in the Bible, to answer right now all of the details going on behind that why question. Job certainly never got his answer, but when he saw God, it didn't matter anymore. He realized that hanging in there and trusting was the right thing. And later, it did all make sense to Job, looking back in reverse, not in advance, but in reverse. To those who love God, nothing irredeemable can happen to you, nothing that can't be used by God. That's the promise we have. You don't have a promise that nothing bad's going to happen. We live on a broken planet. Bad things are going to happen. But our God can take even those bad things and recycle them, redeem them into something good. Our special guest today has been Philip Yancey. His brand new work, the sequel to Where's God When It Hurts, it's called The Question That Never Goes Away. Why? Philip, thanks for joining us here on Life, Love, and Family. My pleasure and blessings on on all who are listening who are going through hard times. It's not an easy thing. I know that well. What if my greatest disappointments are the aching of this life? Is the revealing of a greater thirst This world can't satisfy And what if trials of this life The rain, the storms, the hardest nights All your mercies in disguise without question, the most difficult question in all the world. Why? And I want to close out by staying in Romans chapter 8, because I I agree with Philip Yancey. It's where our hope lies. What will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Verse 37 says, nothing. 
For I'm sure, Paul wrote, that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. My dad, when he was dying, said this to me. He said, son, it's because of Christ and his love for us. I'll see you again. That's what we cling on to. We can be of help to you if you want to learn more about Philip Yancey and that new book, The Question That Doesn't Go Away. Visit us at lifeloveandfamily.net. Call our toll-free number, 855-455-3264. Thanks for listening. Life, Love, and Family. Women in Depression. Get confidential help. 1-877-257-9612. Women addicted to alcohol or drugs. Get confidential help. 1-877-257-9612. Women with anxiety or eating disorders, trauma, and PTSD. Get confidential help. Timberline Knowles Residential Treatment Center. 1-877-257-9612 or timberlineknowles.com.